It's good to be back with you worshiping this morning. Karen and I had the chance to visit her sister, Lindsay, and her husband in New Zealand. It was beautiful down under. If you can make it down there, you should go. Highly recommend it. I want to thank Colin and Jason for filling in for me, not just because it gave me a chance to travel and to rest, but most importantly because they preached the gospel well to us as a church. They held out Jesus as grace upon grace to us, and so for that I am immensely grateful. I have heard from many of you uh, how their words ministered to you not to point attention to them, uh, but that the gospel was preached in its fullness, and that should give us great rejoicing and celebration together. Uh, This morning we'll move into John 6, and we will see more pictures of redemption and even a glimpse of what recreation looks like. This has been a theme in John's gospel. All throughout, Jesus' redemption has been emphatically a redemption of the things that are instead of a creation out of nothing. And so even this morning, when we get to see a very familiar story, please pay attention to the fact that Jesus doesn't feed these people out of nothing. He redeems things that are paltry and insufficient on their own. What Jesus came to do is pictured for us here, and it's what Jesus intends to do with us as people, as his church. He intends to make us full, not to replace us, but to make us new and to fulfill his grace and his promises in us. Little Christians, as you listen this morning, I want you to think about a few things. This is a passage about being hungry and being filled, very appropriate this Thanksgiving weekend. I want you to think about the types of things you can be hungry for, and by that I mean more than just food. What types of things can you want and feel like you need? And then I want you to think about this. Why does Jesus let us feel our hunger? Sometimes he lets us feel our emptiness so much, but he does it for a reason. What does he do with us when we feel our emptiness? Church, this is the good news of Jesus, our Savior, from John's Gospel. John 6, verses 1 through 15. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, he, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy food so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, So so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. 
So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for sending Jesus the Son to become man with us and for us, to become and be for us the bread that comes down out of heaven for our nourishment, to sustain and save and redeem our lives, to give us full life in himself, to remake us in full humanity, to live the lives that we could not to fill our emptiness, to show us your love, and to give us your spirit that we might be remade. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all of these things. Our thanks are small and weak compared to the kindness that you have lavished on us. And yet we come to you again this morning asking for more. Would you feed and fill us again this morning? We are tired. We are empty. On our own, we would waste away. But in your grace, you are remaking us. So continue this. Fulfill your promises and your goodness in us for your own glory. Our good as you're desperately hungry but thoroughly satisfied and filled people. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I know that lots of you have Thanksgiving traditions. I don't know what your favorites are. It might include football, either watching it or playing it. It might include the types of things that you eat or where you eat or the people that you see. My favorite Thanksgiving tradition, I think, is when we eat Thanksgiving dinner with my wife's family, at the end of the meal, her grandfather George pushes back from the table, very satisfied, and he looks at me, and he looks at my brother-in-law, Justin, and he says, well, boys, I think I hurt myself. Every year. And when George says, I think I hurt myself, that means he has eaten, and he is full, and we're done. You can go do the dishes, you can go take a nap, you can go watch football. The meal is done when George says that he's hurt himself. And I didn't plan it when I set the calendar to preach through John. This is a happy providence this morning that this passage falls the Sunday after Thanksgiving. This was not contrived so that we could have this passage. But you have people who came hungry and stuffed themselves to the point that some of them probably looked at each other and said, Nope, I think I hurt myself. I can't eat any more. So that as the disciples offer them more, as they're offered seconds and thirds, They have to look at each other and say, that's it, that's all I can do. I am stuffed. I'm a little bit sleepy. 
And so the disciples are sent out to gather up the leftovers. And unlike your Thanksgiving leftovers, they gather up more than they started with. They started with five loaves and two fish, and they gather up 12 baskets full of bread because the people are stuffed. And this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does with our emptiness. This is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does by His grace with people who are on their own, completely empty. We're going to move through the passage in a few moves this morning. There are a couple of layers of background that, are, that will be worthwhile for us in trying to get a picture of a very familiar story. Sometimes, as one of my favorite authors says, you need to take the familiar and make it strange in order to hear it. And so we'll work through some of the layers of background to this story. And after that, I think we'll be able to see more clearly two ways that we're supposed to move forward in believing and living under the gospel, under this gospel of a Savior who takes empty people and makes them full in Himself. So first, as we look at the layers of background, this is a very familiar story, and if we're not careful, we'll read past all of the details. When I come to this passage, it takes me several readings before I get past thinking, Jesus was walking one day and turned around to perform a magic trick. Hey, guess what? I got food for you. And so we need to stop and see just the situation. What are we actually looking at in this scene And then we can pull back and see the religious and theological background. There was tremendous religious and theological background to what Jesus did and how he did it. He is setting a scene for the disciples to play out a theological drama. And John is careful to give us that theological drama this morning so that he can preach to us Jesus' goodness against the backdrop of the story of Scripture. As we look at the situation, I want you to notice the way that the story is set up in those opening verses. In the second verse, you get the fact that the crowd was following him, and you understand why they were following him, just because of the signs they'd seen him do. Exactly the thing I was trying to address in my baptismal, or sacramental instruction rather, just a moment ago. They're following him because they've seen him perform signs, and they're waiting to see what he's going to do next. The way this story plays out over the course of the chapter makes that clear. They're impressed with him. They want to follow him because he's the best show in town. So this crowd is following him, but he is not in their midst when the story starts. He and his disciples are far ahead. They go up on the mountain, and he sits down with his disciples which is what you would do with disciples to teach them. They sit down to have a conversation, and Jesus is instructing his 12 disciples, the ones who have traveled with him, the ones who do believe in him and are coming to believe in him. And then verse 5 makes clear that Jesus looks off and sees the crowd coming towards them. You get the fact that they were following him, but you don't know how far they were lagging behind until you get to verse 5. 
He and his disciples are in the middle of a discussion. He's in the middle of teaching. They interrupt his seminary class. He looks up and sees this crowd coming toward him. And he doesn't stop teaching. He asks Philip where they can buy bread. But as verse 6 says, he knows what he's planning to do. He's not really asking if Philip has seen a convenience store. He's not really asking Philip where they might buy groceries. He's asking him a question so that he can teach him and the other disciples about himself. And the crowd is far enough off that the conversation that takes place from 5 to around 9 or 10 is just abbreviated. They were so far off that he raised his eyes and saw the large crowd off in the distance coming toward them. And he has time to keep teaching them before they get close. And by the time they get close, they've had a discussion. We just get a couple of sentences out of it. And so what happens in this passage is primarily instructive for the disciples. It is certainly merciful for the crowd. But Jesus is instructing his followers. He is instructing his worshipers in everything he does. And the way that he does it, the things that he says and the way that he performs this miracle are supposed to set for his disciples a theological backdrop. It's a second layer of background I'd want us to see. These things don't happen in a vacuum for them. John is good to point out for us that this happened around the time of the Passover. The passage that Jason preached on last week ended with Jesus explaining to the people that they don't really love him and they have not really believed in him because they haven't even believed the testimony of Moses. They haven't believed what the Old Testament said about him. And now John gives us this story, which is Jesus working out the theological drama of the Old Testament, working out the theological drama of the Exodus and wilderness wandering and showing himself to be the one that would come to replace Moses. More than just making statements about Moses, Jesus casts himself for his disciples as Moses. And John is good to tell us the story so that we're sure not to miss it. The Passover is at hand. Jesus has led his disciples out up on a mountain... And in just a moment, they're going to be surrounded by people out away from provision, wandering and hungry. You should hear all kinds of echoes of the Exodus, the Passover, grumbling in the wilderness, and manna from heaven, even if you didn't have the rest of the chapter that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Even if you didn't have Jesus' interpretive statements at the end of chapter 6, you should start to hear echoes of Moses and the people in the wilderness. Moses even said to God, where am I going to get food to feed all of these people? Just like Jesus asked Philip. And so what Philip should have answered, you can guess. Well, we were with you at the wedding at Cana. We've seen you heal. 
We've seen you provide. We've seen you do miracles. We know that you can sustain your people. Just as the Lord provided for our people back in the wilderness, just as the Lord has never let us go hungry, and just as you yourself, Jesus, have come to fulfill all of the promises, you can feed these people. We don't need to go buy bread. But that's not what Philip answers. Philip scratches his head and says, you're right, Jesus, I don't know. I have no idea we're going to get enough bread for these people. And so Jesus continues to teach them. Throughout John's Gospel, we have these sacramental pictures. And John is setting us up for something. Throughout the Gospel, he is setting us up to see Jesus recasting the Passover and giving a new sacramental meal to his people. And so when Jesus turned water into wine, the wedding at Cana, the Passover was at hand. When he declared himself to be the Lord of feasting and celebration and wine, it was in the context of their Passover feast. And now when Jesus feeds them bread... When he sustains their life, when they can feel it slipping away because of their emptiness, the Passover is at hand. Jesus is preaching to his disciples through the bulk of his ministry, and John is preaching to us as a church, Jesus is your Passover. Jesus is the Lamb who comes, but this time he comes not just for sacrifice, but for feasting. As you think about the biblical backdrop of this story, as you think about the way that bread is used through Scripture, bread is not normally a festival meal. Bread is what we think of it. Bread is just basic sustenance. Bread is kind of bare bones. You need to keep going. Oliver Twist, crust of bread. Even in the garden, when Adam and Eve are expelled, when they can no longer freely eat the fruit of the trees, part of the curse, as God pronounces it to them, is that they will eat bread by the sweat of their brows. In effect, God is saying to them, because of your rebellion, because you weren't satisfied with my free gifts to you, my loving and lavish care for you, you will now toil and sweat and grunt at work to be able to squeeze out a little bit of bread, grind out a little bit of grain that you've worked hard to farm in the earth that's now your enemy. And you'll bake it and make bread for yourself to keep your life sustained for another day. Even in the wilderness, it's people on the brink of death grumbling about the Lord's provision. And he gives them bread every day. In fact, he gives them bread every day, much like we have in John 6. Every day, there's more than they can eat in a day. But they're told, don't store it up for yourself. If you gather it, Don't save it in your house to eat it tomorrow. Trust me to bring you bread tomorrow. Just like the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Bread is this daily provision of sustenance and basic life 
basic life-sustaining and strength-giving provision. And in Scripture, wine is the celebration. And so in both of these miracles, the wedding at Cana and now the multiplication of bread, Jesus says both, and we have both, by the way, in the table. Jesus says, I am your sustenance. I created you, and I sustain you, and I give you strength, and I preserve your life but not just a bare existence. I give you celebration in myself. And you should taste both of those realities when you come to the table next week. When you come to the table and break bread and eat it, one of the things that should be preached to you in that bread is that Jesus created you and sustains your life. And as you drink that wine... What you should taste is the promise that Jesus does not just give you an existence to keep on going, not just enough to make it one more day. He is and gives you your celebration. And both are held out to us in the table. Both are held out in the sacramental pictures of John's gospel. And with the Passover in the background... Jesus provides bread for these people who are empty and hungry. Jesus, who has already multiplied and made wine for celebration in a wedding, now sustains the life of those about to die. For those who know the story of their own misery and sorrow under the curse, under the first Adam, Jesus proclaims himself to be the second Adam. And so through John's gospel, and when we come to the table, you should hear and you should taste that the death and misery of the curse are replaced by the sustenance and celebration of redemption. Jesus is instructing his disciples. His disciples sat down for this lesson Now they're standing up among the people discussing. He continues to instruct them and he tells them to seat the people so he can feed them and continue to instruct them in his grace. As Jesus did that for them, he's doing that for us this morning. We stand in reverence to read God's word, to hear the words of scripture declared to us, as I read through the passage before we preach, but then you sit down, not just because your legs will get tired. You sit down to sit and listen, not so much to my words, but you listen for the voice of the Savior as Jesus continues to instruct you as His disciples and His worshipers. As through yet another means of grace, the preaching of His Word... His words given to the church by the Spirit are interpreted and discussed and heard and considered together as we sit together to be instructed, not just in how neat His signs are, but to be instructed together in the realities that His signs are meant to declare for us. That should be true every week, whether we see a miracle in the passage or not. In every passage, Jesus gives us signs that point to himself. 
And so this morning, as we sit and consider this together, I think this passage, I think this miracle, I think this gospel proclamation gives us two things, two ways to move forward in both believing and living under the gospel. One of them is more general. One of them has to do with the way that Jesus continues to minister through us and to those outside of us. And one of them is very specific. I think one of them fits Jesus' current ministry to us and inside us as New St. Peter's in our current situation. I'll start with the more general. First, First off, Jesus continues to minister through us and outside of us through His provision for people who may or may not be His worshipers. I know that that makes you uncomfortable. We spend a lot of time, as we should, preaching and extolling God's particular grace in the gospel. But sometimes we forget to celebrate together, as God's people, what His common grace looks like. In this passage, we have a beautiful picture of Jesus' common grace. We have 5,000 men, not to mention the women and children who are fed, here on the grass at this mountain. And Jesus feeds them because they're empty and need to be fed. And at the very beginning, we have a statement that they're following him only because of his signs. And what we'll find out later in the passage is that Jesus is going to preach to them tomorrow and drive many of them away. Many, many of these people will never become his worshipers. These were not, this bread was not a door prize. This bread was not meant to be the keychain you get for opening a bank account. This was not something to get people in through the door and to trick them or bribe them into becoming his worshipers. Jesus did this because people needed it. He did it to be gracious to them, even though many of them would never worship him. I don't want to flatten those things out for you. I don't want to tell you that his common grace is exactly like his particular grace. I don't want to tell you that the way that Jesus is gracious in his provision for all people in all places is the same or as rich or as deep or enduring as his grace to us as his people who have been made new by the Spirit and given faith and worship and belonging And at the same time, I don't want to tell you to disregard the first. Celebrate the first and be glad for it. Jesus delights himself to be merciful to people because people are made in his image. And so we have Jesus here being merciful to a crowd, most of whom will forsake him and abandon him and be dissatisfied with him. And that should shape part of our theology of mercy and alms. This is an alms Sunday. We're going to give alms to the deacons to be stewards of, to use wisely and carefully to extend mercy inside our congregation and maybe to some outside of our congregation and not to bribe them into coming in and joining our church. This was part of the reason we had our deacons teach through the book When Helping Hurts in our School of Life and Doctrine classes. We need to think very carefully, and we need to think well, and we need to celebrate together Jesus' love of mercy 
even for those who have not, and even for those who may never worship Him. Our alms and our mercy are not a means to an end for church membership. Jesus loves to minister outside of His church, and He loves to minister through His church. He loves to and wants to minister through New St. Peter's to the neighborhoods that surround us, to the neighborhoods in which we live, to the people and the places where we work, and many of those people may never worship Him. It doesn't mean you stop being merciful to them. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't delight to be kind to them, even if, they will not taste His deepest and richest kindness. It's one thing that's held out to us and preached very clearly in His incarnation, that He comes to minister to us and remake us body and soul. And those things are most true and most fully true of us as His particular people. He will remake us body and soul in His redemption. But He continues to have compassion on and care for the bodily needs of people made in His image who suffer under the curse, who can feel their hunger, even if they will never feast on Him the way that we do. Now with that said... I want to move to the much more specific. I'm not speaking in general anymore what Jesus wants to do in the world at large, or in Dallas at large, or our neighborhoods in general. More specifically, let's consider Jesus' current ministry to us as New St. Peter's, not just a church, but as our church. Before we get started, I want you to notice the way the story is told. You don't have time to read it right now while I'm talking, but go back this afternoon and reread it with this in mind. This is not a story that reads like a superhero coming to the rescue. This is not some arch villain had some evil plot and Jesus suddenly became aware of it and put on his cape and swooped in. This is Jesus running the show from beginning to end. Jesus is cognizant of the crowd the whole time. Jesus knows that they're coming, and he knows what he's going to do with them. He knows what he's going to preach to them tomorrow that's going to drive most of them away. But on that mountain, to his church of twelve, he instructs them in the gospel. He instructs them in who he is and what He does for His people, and how He loves them. This has been a very difficult season for us as a church. Colin was good to refer to it in his sermon. I remember as I listened to his on the podcast after I got back, he talked about it as an odd and uncomfortable season in New St. Peter's. And it is that. You know that. I know that. Your session knows that. We can feel our hunger. We can feel our emptiness very acutely. 
And there's a temptation for us when we feel those things. I know that I have felt this. This is not me pointing fingers at you. I know that it's true of me. It might be true of some of you. There's a temptation to spend our days fixed and focused on our hunger and emptiness. Spent proclaiming our hunger and emptiness together so that we can wallow in it. Jesus does not let us feel our hunger and our emptiness so that we can wallow in it. Jesus does not let us feel our emptiness and hunger so that we can fixate on it. But it is very kind for him to let us feel it. On our own, we are empty and hungry. And it is very kind for him at times to let us feel it, sometimes for prolonged seasons. But he doesn't do it to leave us there. He doesn't do it to let us pity ourselves. He doesn't do it doesn't do it to fuel our complaints or our self-loathing. He does it so He can teach us about His abundance. He does it to teach us about the way that He fills emptiness. Jesus, the Word of God, who spoke into being all that is, everything out of nothing, everything into void and emptiness. The one who formed the creation, who took chaos and gave it order and beauty. He's the same Jesus who comes to redeem all that feels so chaotic under the curse. All that needs redemption, and that includes our current season as a church. He lets us feel our hunger to remind us and to preach to us that He carries abundance with Him wherever He goes and He can bring it about effortlessly. And so we've had a prolonged season of feeling our hunger. And it wasn't, it wasn't haphazard. It didn't catch Jesus by surprise. He has been in charge the whole time. He has been caring for New St. Peter's the whole time. And he is actively teaching us about his abundance. I'm going to steal this from Chad's instruction earlier this morning. I half wanted to wave everything off and tell you to go home after Chad's first sermon about it is well being tied to it is finished. That everything is well with our souls because Jesus 2,000 years ago hung on a cross and straight with a straight face said it is finished. It was beautifully stated, but more importantly, that's true. That is good news for us. And I watch you come in week after week. And as the weeks have gone on, I have watched you come in with longer faces. I have watched us sing hymns with longer faces and shoulders dropped a little lower, with less laughter and with fewer smiles. It feels heavy. The good news for us is that no matter what happens to us, no matter what our circumstances, Jesus has declared it is finished. Jesus has lived his full life for us. He has died in our place and risen victorious over the curse for us. And now he stands before the Father, interceding for us. And so it is well with our soul.
No matter what you think of your hunger, no matter what you think of your emptiness, Jesus stands ready to feed us as a church. And more than that, maybe better stated, He doesn't stand ready only. He has been feeding us every week, even while it feels heavy, even if we struggle to sing the words, it is well with my soul. Every week He feeds us with more than enough to fill us, so much that there are fragments left over, so much that none of us leave hungry, even if we're upset, even if we leave sad. He has been feeding us on Himself, on His promises, on His goodness. He has been feeding us with the constant reminders of our belonging to the Father through Him. Our fellowship with one another, our life together given by the Spirit by which we were remade. And all of these things, Jesus has been feeding us. Even when we walk in weeks that it feels heavy, even when we walk in looking like the crowd who comes to Him hungry and empty in ourselves, Jesus continues to feed us as a church. In His kindness for a time, He has let us feel our hunger and our emptiness. Please don't lose sight of His abundance and the way that He feeds us on Himself. In all of these things, Jesus has been gracious to us, feeding us on His abundance. And He will continue to do it until we are more than filled. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your mercy to us. We thank You for the common grace that we enjoy with people everywhere. that You provide for our daily needs, that You give us the joys of family and friendship, that You give us life in Your creation to enjoy what You have made. And most of all, we thank You for Your very particular grace to us that comes to us through Jesus the Son. We thank you that you have, in your kindness, let us feel our hunger and let us feel our emptiness, that we now are aware of the curse more acutely, not so that we can wallow in it, not so that we can pity ourselves, but that we can rejoice that you have overcome the curse in Jesus whom you sent to become the new creation for us, to bring his kingdom to earth. Father, we see pieces of it now. And we long for the day when we will see it fully. Lord Jesus, as we cry out at the end of every one of our worship services, come quickly. Remake us fully by your grace. Let us see the resurrection. Let us see the new creation in its fullness. And in the meantime, continue to let us see your mercy. Let us see your mercy for us as your people consistent proclamation that we stand forgiven because of your cross and your rising. The beauty of your life growing in us by the Spirit as we are remade and conformed to your image. 
And be kind to us and give us more celebration as we get to see your mercy extended beyond our walls to people who are outside of us and desperately need. Need to be fed. They need bread to eat. But we also pray for them that you would feed them body and soul, that you would feed them not just with the bread that perishes, but with the bread of life. We ask that you would do all of these things, that you would let us see them and rejoice in them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning.